Well, we're headed into a new year, and last week we did what we always do at the start of a new year. We took a fresh look at our big rocks. What are the core values? What are the the biblical foundations that we stand on as a church that guide us to not be chasing after every fad and help us decide what are we going to do and what are we not going to do? But it's more, more than that. It doesn't matter what we say we're about. It takes people, real people, to put their shoulder under that and to give their lives and time and money and thought and gifts. And we actually need people to serve. And we need Christians that would be serving inside and outside of our church. So that puts a question on the table that I want to deal with for the next three weeks. The real question then is, God is on the move inside and outside of our church. And he's going to do great stuff this year. But will he choose to use us? Or will he go looking for somebody else? In other words, what is the kind of person that God is looking for? Who do you need to be? What do we need to be like for God to say, yes, I can use her. Yes, I can use her. I can use him. That's who I've been looking for. What would you need to be like? And I'm here to tell you, it is so different than what we naturally think. And what our world puts together when you go to the scriptures. Who are the people God uses most? Who is it that God's looking for? And to find our answers, I want to dig into 2 Corinthians. So turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Go ahead and mark it. Because we're going to be in these first few chapters for the next three weeks. For three weeks, we're going to be in the early chapters of 2 Corinthians. These are chapters that have changed my life. This is a very personal series, you guys. This is like one beggar sharing with other beggars where I found hope, how I kept from quitting. And I'm not talking about just quitting as a pastor. You say, well, great, I'm not a pastor. I'm talking about as a Christian serving God and just feeling overwhelmed and saying, I'm not that gifted. I'm not that able. I'm too messed up. I'm still struggling with this. Surely God's looking for somebody else. I am not up here because I woke up as a young child saying, I want to be a pastor. And then I want to be a pastor of a big church that has three services and a budget of four million. Yeah, bring it. I'm the guy that sat in my dorm at University of Tennessee arguing with the God of the universe. As I heard a voice that said, I want you in full-time ministry. I said, "Uh, no, you don't. And I don't want to be. It's been this way from the very beginning I'm not here because I'm like, yes, and I feel so able and competent and sufficient. So I want to show you what has kept me from quitting, show you what has helped me when I felt most overwhelmed in like, I can't do this. And you might feel that way as you hear messages here. Surely God's going to use somebody else to serve Second Corinthians. Today, I'm going to start reading in chapter 1, just kind of the opening comments of Paul. And then I'm going to jump to chapter 3 and grab hold of a handful of verses, oh my goodness, that have kept me going, that I've turned to again and again and again at my worst moments where I've been the closest to saying, that's it, I'm done. God surely wants to use somebody else. Second Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we're comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast. Because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. For we do not want you to be ignorant, my brethren, of the trouble which came to us in Asia. That we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. That we should not trust in ourselves, 
but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Jump to chapter three. We'll start in on verse two, chapter three, verse two. Paul talking to the believers sitting there in the church in the city of Corinth now, who've been saved out of a a very immoral, sinful, awful city. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. You are manifestly an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not That we're sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. But our sufficiency is from God. Who made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. I have two main points. The first one we're going to get out of those verses in chapter 1, and then we'll get the second one from chapter 3. So jump back to chapter 1. We're answering that question, who are the people that God uses most? God is on the move, so you're not in that church. That in any way, this is not like putting you in a headlock. Oh, feel bad for God. If we don't serve Him, there'll be things He wants to do in our world this year that can't get done. Shut up. So that's a different church with some horrible theology. God is on the move and God is doing what God is doing. It's just a question of, will we get in on what he's doing? Because yes, he still uses people to accomplish it. But what kind of people? Who's he looking for? Our world is so different than how our God thinks because we're always, we're looking for, who is he looking for? What catches God's attention? When does he say, yes, yes. Here's my first point from chapter one. Your most severe trials and suffering can add mercy to the way you see and serve other people around you. It sounds cliche and trite that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you... But there are some cliches that are just absolutely true and biblical. It doesn't matter how much you know, my friend. And we're we're a church that says, please know your Bible. Read your Bible, study, read other good books. But listen to me. That doesn't mean it's just know your Bible, speak your Bible, scream your Bible, talk your Bible, point to the Bible, memorize Bible verses, hit them over the head with a Bible verse. Here's a Bible verse, here's a Bible verse, here's a Bible verse. Oh my goodness. God wants to do a work in us. Because again, who are we following? We're not following the elders here. We're not following Brad Bigney. We're following Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ had compassion. Your most severe trials and suffering, and I've worded this carefully, it's not will add, because you could just get bitter. Your most severe trials and suffering can They have the potential, the possibility. You're at a place where this could happen. Can add mercy to the way you see and serve other people around you. Because it does two things, or it can do two things. The first you can see in verses 3 and 4 there, chapter 1. It enables you, listen, to be comforted by God on a level that is way beyond academic book knowledge, just some Bible verses. Oh, you maybe already know all the right verses about God is sovereign. He draws near to the brokenhearted. You can know all that. And it's very different when then you are at a place where you're like, oh my goodness. And for yourself... These two things don't usually happen at the same time. It's great to be informed by God's word and learn God's word. Don't hear me saying just don't even learn God's word until you really are broken. But folks, Bible knowledge can be way ahead of things that have to happen in our life that just engage it now in a way that is so different. You yourself 
have tasted the God of all mercies and found his comfort. He's comforted you in a way that your best friend at Panera over lunch can't do. And they mean well. But on a deep level, he's real. He's real to me. Those verses are alive to me. That's what Paul's talking about. Oh, and here's the good news. That kind of comfort that you can give to others, it's not one of these deals where, oh, the only way I can comfort a drug addict, the only one I, way I can comfort someone who's had a, a, a child die, the only, is if I've had that happen. Good news. Here's what the, those verses are teaching. You don't have to experience every, every shattering thing that everyone goes through to help somebody. But you do need to have experienced something at some point in some way in your life where that for you. And here's what's neat about it. Look, look at it in verses 3 and 4 again. Because here's how it's worded on purpose. He comforts us in all our tribulation, whatever it is that happened to you, that we may be able to comfort those who are in... He could have said the same kind of tribulation. Does he say that? Who are you able to comfort when you have really tasted the God of all mercies and been comforted by him personally? People who are in any trouble. Any trouble. Any trouble. Now, those of you that are confused, it's because you're not there yet. Just keep living. But that's how, what God has, has worked in my own life. Personally, praise God, I haven't experienced the shattering of a divorce by God's grace. Though she could have. Thank you, baby. <laughs> she said, I don't love you at all. But that's a different sermon series. She stayed with me and God broke through. I haven't experienced divorce, but guess what? What God chose to allow into Brad Bigney's life broke me in such a way and pressed me the way Paul is talking beyond measure, above strength, so that it spared even of life, thought I had the sentence of death within me. I can't do this. I'm going, the walls are closing in, the ceiling's coming down. I'm, 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 I'm going to die. I can't do it. That I've never been the same. And mine, if you've been here long enough, some of you know, was an ear condition that I thought I was going deaf. I thought I was losing my mind. I thought I was going crazy. I didn't want to be around people. I didn't want to speak. And it didn't last a week. It lasted eight years. I mean, I, I, it was all I could do to get out of bed and drag myself to the living room and read my Bible and memorize yet another verse and cry out to God all the way to church saying, I can't do it. I can't do it. I don't want to be with people. I don't want to counsel anybody. I don't want to preach a sermon. I can't preach a sermon. But in that dark, desperate, desperate, painful place, I tasted mercy. And God met with me in a way that's way beyond book knowledge and the second thing that can happen in those kind of times is what he says in verses 8 to 10 so you can taste the mercy of God for yourself and be comforted and it sweetens you you have a heart that's tender to any trouble I think I'm a better pastor and more compassionate to people who are going through divorce though I have not but I know what it's like to see something and experience something life shattering where it's like oh my goodness the walls are closing in this any trouble, whatever your trouble, if it's severe trials and suffering, it enables you to help someone with any trouble. But verse 8, and 8 to 10 tells us the second thing that can happen. You can be pushed to the very brink of despair. You say, Brad, are you talking about Christians? Yes. Brink. So just because we're not supposed to despair doesn't mean God doesn't understand there's a place for you being right on the edge of despair, right up against it. Why? Well, he doesn't tell us what was going on because he says we were pressed in Asia. The trouble was beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. He doesn't tell us what. We always want to know what. What was happening? We don't know. Oh, but he tells us exactly why. Exactly why. In verse 9, that, that we should not trust 
Say it. In ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Now, I've told you before in my preaching, that's a purpose clause. So as I'm reading, I don't want just Bible information. I want to know more, know more, know more. I want to know why. What's the purpose? What's the end game? Why would God allow one of his children? Because we're talking about Christians here. Why would he allow one of his children to be in a circumstance and a place where they felt that this burden was beyond measure, above strength, so that they despaired even of life and felt like they maybe even had the sentence of death in them? It's, in the Greek, it's the word henna. It's a henna clause. Henna that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God. Now, maybe this is news to you, but guess what? We don't actually like trusting God. There, I said it. You say, Brad, how do you know that? Because I wake up with me. And for 21 years, I've served you. This is not natural. It's not like, oh, let's trust God. You know, hey, hey, that sounds awful. And we don't know what's going to happen. And your friend leans over and says, oh, we're going to trust God on this one. No, that's not how we talk. What can we do? Where can we turn? How can we fix this? And usually if it comes to trusting God, it's stated like, well, I guess we're just going to have to trust God. Oh, has it come to that? Oh, no. We don't want to do that. Anything but that, right? We do not like trusting God. We feel out of control. It's like, what can I do? What can we do? How can we? It's actually the mercy of God that he has to, in his goodness, bring into each of our lives. And he does it different ways with different believers. Something or some season that puts you in verses 8 to 10 where you say, we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we even despaired of life. It could be your children and what's happening or not happening. It could be your finances. It could be unemployment. It could be imprisonment or jail time. It could be any number of things. God can do it any number of ways, but the purpose is the same. Circumstances different. Purpose, same. Every believer before God can ever use you remotely, let alone greatly, has to come to a place where you don't just know the theology of God's mercy. You have tasted it for yourself and found comfort in it and now have something to comfort others with. And oh, the other thing that happens is your first thought is no longer judging them. Well, how in the world did you get to that place? You obviously weren't doing what the Bible says and weren't in a small group, so (laughs) there. Oh, your first, first response is compassion. You know what that feels like. Oh, my goodness, to be at a place like that. Oh, mercy. And then trusting God in a way that it gives you a zeal to point them there because you've been there. You found that to be your only hope. And he didn't fail you. It was a game changer. Mercy. And trusting God. And those things most often are accomplished through your most severe trials and suffering. These things aren't wasted. That's why we need to learn to suffer well. Don't just get bitter and don't watch the afternoon cable Christian TV channels that are trying to tell you, you know, the king's kids go first class. You know, nothing bad should happen to you if you got this secret formula and doing it right. That is not in the Bible. It's actually suffering and trials, which our Savior went through as well, that begin to make us more like him and cause that sweet aroma. Oh, it might feel like a crushing, but folks, just like with good wine, it's crushed. It's put in a dark place and it produces something very sweet and good. But getting there, oh, that was hard. Same way with us. For there to be a sweetness about your life. And I'm not talking about personality. I am not naturally sweet. I know. But not having the gift of mercy. My wife would tell you. And I hope others of you would. Oh. 
I'm different than I was 30 years ago. And I didn't get there by reading 50 books a year, though I love to read 50 books a year. I got there through suffering. As I cried out to God and said, oh God, make me a better pastor. He didn't turn me to better books to read. He brought suffering and trials into my life that I would not have signed up for or asked for. But today, Vicki and I would both tell you, I would not say I wish it hadn't happened. It is what has made us who we are today. Not perfect, but oh, so much more effective in ministering to others. So much more effective in serving God. So that's the first thing right there from chapter one. You don't need to be afraid. I don't want you to think, oh, he's going to do something horrible this year to me. He's good. He's good, dad. He's a good father. We live in a fallen, broken world. Things are going to happen. It, the question just is how you're going to respond to them. Do you want to get bitter and do you just want to uh, your way through it? Or are you going to say, oh, ho, ho, this could be it. This could be what Brad was talking about from 2 Corinthians 1. This could be what the apostle Paul was talking about. Because Paul was a mature, seasoned believer. This was not some lightweight who needs to memorize a Bible verse and get in a small group. This is a seasoned, mature believer. But this was what took him to another level in ability to serve and see lives impacted. Jump over to chapter 3 now. Chapter 3 is where I want you to see the second possibility. And this is going to surprise you, I hope. It's like... Let me show you a second thing that puts you at the top of God's list as to who he chooses to use. And it's going to surprise some of you, I know. Here it is in a sentence. Your lack of credentials can make room for the spirit to work through you instead of having to compete with you. Oh, You know, most of the time we run around, what's the number one thing I hear as to why people aren't serving, whether it's in the marketplace. When I say serve in this message, I hope you don't think, oh, that's in the nursery. That's in a children's class. That's it could be. But I hope you go to your job thinking I want to serve God as unto God in this classroom, in this boardroom, in this. The number one thing that keeps us from being effective is not lack of giftedness. It's self-sufficiency. One of the biggest reasons God can't use us more, folks, is that we're too strong, too gifted, too talented, too self-sufficient, too, oh, I have it all together. Lack of giftedness has never kept God from using someone. Look at me. Self-sufficiency gets in the way all the time. Your lack of credentials can make room for the spirit to work in you instead of having to compete with you. Let me just get you to look at chapter 3, verse 3. In one verse, he unpacks for us and summarizes in a great way what is happening whenever you see a life changed. Whenever you see, a, I mean, a turnaround, there's a transformed life. Look what God just did. And maybe it was a girlfriend sharing the gospel at Panera Bread. Maybe it was another guy lifting weights and talking about the gospel. Maybe it was someone on campus meeting with a, a Saudi Arabian student, answering questions about Jesus, using the Bible. Maybe, 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 maybe you fill in the blank. But whenever you see a life changed, verse 3 tells us what was going on. Look at verse 3, chapter 3. You are manifestly an epistle of Christ. He's talking to the people sitting at the church in Corinth. What he's saying, folks, is that every single one of those people, regardless of background, where they're coming from, education, Jesus is doing work in there. They are an epistle of Christ. No matter who you're serving, whether at New Hope or Fairhaven Rescue or wherever you do what you think you're doing for God, you're never, no one is ever your construction project. No one's ever your project. It's never that what you're doing in someone's life. It's what Jesus Christ is doing. They're a letter of Christ. He's writing their story. He's at work. He's alive and he's at work. And then the next phrase just simply tells us, but what are we doing then, Brad? Look at that next phrase. Ministered by us. God does use real people. He does say in Romans 10, how shall they hear unless someone goes? 
You got to go. You got to speak. You got to serve. You got to. But the danger is don't ever think it's what you're doing and it's your agenda and it's your plan. And the impact in their lives is you. No, no, no. You are epistles of Christ ministered by us. And the word ministered there is diaconus, the same word we get deacon. You're just stepping in to serve. I'll serve like this, Lord. I'll serve like this. Ministers, epistles of Christ ministered by us. And then he tells you where the real power is and why any change takes place. Look at it. Written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is of the heart written not with ink we can write some things down and hand it to someone here's a bible verse or here's a list do more of this do less of this make these changes here's a diagram don't hear me saying there's no place for that those of us that do biblical counseling there's a place for writing some things down explaining something giving it to them even saying memorize that think that through it's based on scripture just never forget my piece of paper and ink on the outside of their lives cannot change a heart it's the spirit of the living god when he begins to work not on tablets of stone but on tablets of flesh that is of the heart you've got to change life that's why you can bumble around sometimes and think that was my worst children's lesson ever but you have no idea the impact on those kids that's why sometimes as you lead a small group you can think oh that was horrible or as you counsel someone that was horrible And yet you don't know what God is doing because hallelujah, it's not all based on how well and how right you did what you do. It's the spirit of God working on hearts of flesh. That's when you see a changed life. Spirit of God. So then here's the question that I want you to answer. About anything that you think you're doing that you would consider, that's how I serve God. That's how I'm serving God. Whether it's out in the marketplace or the neighborhood or, or specifically in our church or outside of our church with New Hope, Fairhaven, you name it. As you think about serving, are you working for God? And it's all about you and your resources and what you're bringing. Or is the Spirit of God working through you? Are you working for God? Here's what I do for God. Or is the Spirit of God working through you? There's a big difference. You working for God can actually draw attention. You can get praise. You can get accolades. People can think you're way ahead of them. And actually, in the scheme of it all, what isn't seen by the eye, it's producing less fruit than someone else. You say, Brad, how do I know? How would I know which it is? Am I working for God? Or is the Spirit of God working through me? There's more to it than what I'm about to say, but let me just get you started. One big tip-off. That it's really you working for God rather than the Spirit working through you is the fact that you rarely ever pray about what it is you're doing. You never wait on the Lord and listen for his input. If he wants to revise something, alter something, even in the moment. You never cry out to God and say, oh God, here we go. I can't do it. I can't do this. Do it through me. Would you work on a level that's beyond? I am not perfect, folks, but I get on my knees in my office. And I cry out, not just right before I come out here, during the week. I say, oh God, make this a better sermon than I've written. Oh God, you know who's sitting here. Oh God, help me to know of everything in this passage. What could I say? What should I say? Help me, help me. These are your people. I want to be your minister, your humble servant. It's about what you could do in lives and you know who's coming. Oh God, help as people come for counseling. I just pray. Oh God, please help them through me. I don't have all the answers. I don't know. If you're teaching a children's class, Thank you. But don't just prepare the craft. Go over your lesson. Make sure you know the song. And not cry out to God. And when I say pray, don't make the mistake. I am not even talking about on the way here, you throw a quick one up. Oh, God, help us this morning with the three-year-olds. I'm not saying he doesn't hear that. But that is not what I'm talking about. 
I'm talking about long before you got here. Oh, God, would you work? I have no idea who these little boys and girls are going to grow up to be. I don't know what's going on in their homes. I don't know what they're seeing from their parents. I don't know if they have both parents. I don't know. You know, would you make this a better 45 minutes or hour than I could ever put together? Would you work in ways? If you're serving with Young Life, yay. If you're opening up your home and kids are piling into the basement for club, Cars are up and down the street. Don't just clean. Well, you probably don't clean the basement. You do that after they're gone. Don't just turn the lights on. Cry out to God. Oh, would you meet with us? Kids are coming that coming from broken homes and public schools. Kids that don't know Jesus, don't know the gospel. Kids that are so confused. Would you meet with us? If you're, and if you're leading Young Life, if you're just putting together a funny skit and writing a funny song and getting your gospel message and your verse you want to share, but you're not crying out to God in desperation saying, break through the darkness, take out hearts of stone, put in hearts of flesh, open ears to hear the gospel, rescue young men and women. Then it's you working for God rather than the spirit of God working through you. All of it's spiritual also. I hope you understand, oh my goodness, what God might do if everybody here started to realize everything we do in the realm of serving is spiritual. It's not like some things are really spiritual and some things just, ah. If you're grinding coffee here, if you're a greeter, if you're an usher, it's all spiritual. Listen to me, my friend. Those of you that are doing the coffee, Consider this. It's more than just, oh, aren't we addicts? We need caffeine. Holy Spirit's not enough. There may be some truth to that. But I'll tell you what else is going on. It happens to fit with our culture that people who feel ill at ease in a setting are comforted by just gripping a paper cup of something in their hand. Did you realize that? There are people sitting out in the parking lot that talked to me that came two, three Sundays before they even walked in and they they didn't get out of their car and they drove away because they're saying, I don't belong, I don't fit, I can't go in a church, I haven't been there in 30 years, I've done terrible things. But when they come in here and they see coffee, that's something they know and they get a cup and they don't feel quite as stupid just standing there like this. I'm drinking coffee, I'm not an idiot. Drinking coffee. There's something about it that's spiritual. If you're a greeter, pray before you come. So coffee, as you're, as you're grinding the coffee, pray for every cup that will be served and for the people that will take that. If you're a greeter, pray, oh God, there are people coming in broken that can barely be here. You may not pick it up right away, but you don't know who these people are. Go out of your way. God, Fill me with, may they sense Jesus in me, even the way that I greet them, help them, guide them to their class, answer their questions. As I usher these people, I don't know who they are or how hard it was to come, find them some space. It's incredibly hard to walk down an aisle while people are singing in a dark room and everyone's standing and look for your own seat. This matters. It's all spiritual. Does that make sense? But what if we all prayed? Every greeter, every usher, Every children's teacher, every coffee grinder, every small group leader, every biblical counselor. I don't mean just little flare prayers. Cried out to God, oh God, by your spirit, work through all these channels. By the spirit of the living God on hearts of flesh. What are you doing? Are you working for God or are you... Have the Spirit of God working through you. Big, 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 big difference. Then look at verse 5 and 6 because he, he just lumps all of us together in one category. It's interesting. Notice how verse 5 and 6 starts. Not that we are... He, he could have done this. Now, a word to those of you at the church in Corinth that really just don't have it. Don't measure up and you're not qualified and you are losers. Let me say something to you. He doesn't say it that way. He lumps us all together. Not. We're all in the category of not. Not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. But our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant. That word sufficient in the Greek is hekanos. And it means to be worthy to meet the standard, to measure up, to be qualified. 
Paul is saying nobody in this room is worthy to serve God. Nobody in this room is qualified. Nobody in this room measures up. Nobody in this room meets the standard. But good news, God can make you sufficient as ministers. And chapter one already told us how he most often does that. Through suffering and trials that are severe, you taste God's mercy, you cry out to him and trust him. And then you begin to understand, oh my goodness, he has to work on a heart level, but I'll simply just be a servant, do what I can. Here we go. The Lord's work done in the Lord's way is always the Lord's work done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Power of the Holy Spirit. And to have that, you have to be humble. You have to be broken. You have to see yourself as not able, not sufficient. Not adequate. Here's what I think. In light of this passage, there's just two big categories of Christians sitting here today. Those who are self-sufficient. And I'm not picking on you because that's me in that category. So I'm type A my whole life. Straight A's, most likely to succeed. President of the National Honor Society, you know, did well in seminary. Da, 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 da. I am, I'm going to do things right, do things well, head of the class. I'm not going to agree to do anything that I can't do right. That's how you pull that off also, which was part of my problem with being here. I was like, ah, no, Lord, no, no, ministry, no. I'm, I'm going to be, I was in pre-med. I, I, you know, table of, you know, chemicals and biology, oh, Ministry just seems so messy, if I'd only known. So unable to control. Oh, hello. I'll feel like such a loser. Oh, yes. Anyway, different message. It's, it's those that are the self-sufficient, and there are those that are, I put in the category of shattered, broken, weak, and for some reason, you have yourself in this special category that because of me and my background, God would never use me. I'm not like other Christians. I had an abortion. I know God can forgive me and I asked him to forgive me, but I still just kind of have myself in a different category. He'd never use me. Or I've, I've been divorced. He wouldn't use me. I've been sexually abused. I feel like second class damaged goods. He would never or my children didn't turn out like some other people's kids and they don't all love the Lord and I guess that's on me and I'm embarrassed, I feel judged, it's so public. Social media, hello. Everybody knows. Whatever it is, you have yourself in a category of, he would never, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I wasn't trained, I didn't get all this good stuff. Oh my goodness, so... I'm way behind other Christians. I've already done such terrible stuff and hurt so many people. God would never use me. Now listen to me. Of those two categories, I'm not making this up. This is from the Bible. You over here that are saying, it could never be me, are towards the top of God's list. Those, because often those that haven't experienced some of this, here's the problem with us as human beings. Too often your thoughts, these were her thoughts, your thoughts, why are people so messed up? How could she? How could he? How could she have an abortion? How did she end up in divorce? How could they be attracted to the same sex? Oh, I just, oh. I'm glad I'm not like other people. And if some of these people would just read their Bible as much as I do and work as hard as I do and be as disciplined as I do, they wouldn't be in some of the messes they're in. It's not things you say at small group, right? You're smarter than that. I'm talking about thoughts. Even these thoughts over here, this is not usually someone raises their hand at small group and says, oh, can I share something? I feel like the biggest loser. No, these are thoughts. And these are thoughts. But listen, the way God responds to these two groups is very different. I got some really bad news for you over here. God resists you. How could people, oh, how could she, how did he, ah, 
so glad I'm not like. James 4, 6 says, God, resist the proud. But get, so before God can even use you, he needs to break you and humble you. So he's got a different agenda altogether for you. So never mind all the gift assessments and tests and all that. Where should you serve? He's got a different agenda for you. And even, I don't want to scare you, even if it's not sinful, heinous pride that you're guilty of, let me tell you something else. If you just happen to be one of those men or women that is very gifted, very talented, very sufficient, very confident, what you see in Scripture is that God almost always gifts you with a limp before he begins to use you greatly. I'm not saying he's mad at you. And notice I worded it, a gift. Paul the apostle, that's his own testimony, right? If we kept reading 2 Corinthians and got all the way over to 12, you'd hear Paul say, beginning in verse seven, lest I should be exalted above measure because of the revelations I'd received. And if you read Philippians three, you'll say, oh my goodness, He had a PhD equivalent of education. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the name, that top teacher of the day. He came from the right tribe, right families, right connections. Everything's right. Lest I be exalted above measure, God has given me. God, not Satan. I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. And then he says the same phrase again. Lest I be exalted above measure measure. And whatever it was, Paul thought, I can serve God better without this. So whatever this is, if you're here and you're super gifted, super, in your mind, whatever it is, you would think, I could serve God better without this. It feels like a handicap. It feels like limitation. It feels like mm -hmm, a limp, a limp. God will gift you with a limp so that he can actually use you Greatly. So prideful people, he resists. Super gifted people, he gifts with a limp. Broken, shattered, weak. I'm in a special category. God would never use me. He has a different word for you because you're also hearing from the lies of our enemy, Satan, who's the accuser of the brethren. That that says constantly, who do you think you are that you could serve God? Who do you think you are with all that you've done? No way. His word to you is much more a word of encouragement and you see it all through the scriptures, all through the scriptures. Yes, you, you, you. Let me prove it to you with just one passage. Since we just came through Christmas, let me prove it to you with a Christmas passage. Turn with me to Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, his lineage. How did he get here? Literally, Physically through what human beings, right? He didn't just arrive. It came through the lines of families and men and women. Who in the world would God choose to use? What kind of families? What kind of people would get to be a part of? Oh my goodness. Our savior, Jesus Christ, the God man came through my family. My family's part of that. Let me show you. Matthew chapter one. Now the Jews were very into genealogies and Matthew directs his letter primarily to the Jews, and so there's lots of lists like this. But I hope this will encourage you to not just skim through genealogies. There's nuggets of life-changing truth even in genealogies. Watch this. Chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Now, you notice anything missing? We've got fathers... Having sons, father, son, father, son, father, son. I've been around long enough to know it takes something else to produce a child. There was a woman. She doesn't get mentioned. And that's how they were. They didn't usually list them in genealogies. It's the dad, it's the son, it's the dad, it's the son. It's the... Verse 3, the Holy Spirit is about to do something different on purpose to make a point, And it was radical. And it's the point I want you to hear this morning. Verse 3, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Who's Tamar? 
Oh, she's just a woman that dressed up and pretended to be a prostitute and sat on the side of the road and seduced her father-in-law and had sex with him and produced two children. Not awkward. You thought your Christmas gatherings each year were awkward with your dysfunctional family. Imagine getting past that forevermore. I can't believe that was you. That you would do that. I can't believe you did it. Whatever. (laughs) Tamar pretended to be a prostitute. And here she is. But watch this. Perez begat Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Oh, things just got worse. This is not a pretend prostitute. This is a for real prostitute. This is what she did for a living. This is how she earned her income. Prostitute Rahab is named. Obed begot Jesse. Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon. Oh, oh, I missed Ruth. Sorry. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Now, not sexually immoral that we know of, but I tell you what, Gentile. Considered an outcast. In fact, worse than just Gentile, Moabite. You know anything about that? The Moabites had been so cursed by God in a special way. He had said no Moabite should come into the temple for 10 generations. And she's not just listed here. She gets a whole book of the Bible named after her. There is a book of Ruth. She's a Moabite. What are you doing, God? You can't use somebody like that. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. And then watch this. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Now this, this, this is very pronounced because do we know her name? Is it mentioned in the Bible? Why is he not saying it now? Did he have a brain freeze? No, 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 no. He is even more putting it right up prominent This woman was someone else's wife. Who's her name? David had sex with... He committed adultery. See, don't hear me saying, so this year, make it the year of adultery. I'm not saying that. But we tend to have this thinking in our mind. There's things that, oh, God would never use you now. You're done. You're toast. You are second class, on the margin, way out there. You're just lucky to go to heaven. Just be glad you don't burn in hell. But God will never use you. Because you've done, we've got pretend prostitute, prostitute, Moabite, and adulteress leading up to our Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm convinced we've probably got some people that put themselves in that kind of category. That your whole Christian life, you've just thought, I know God's going to do great things. And I hope he'll find those very gifted people that came from Christian homes and hadn't screwed their lives up too much to get it done. But he would never use me. Not true. I want you to get verse 4 as we close of 2 Corinthians 3. Look at verse 4, because here's what I want you to understand about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. He's not changing subjects. That is not in reference to getting saved, folks. This whole passage is about ministry. He is talking about just like you had to trust Christ. That we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Plus, you have to trust Christ that he could use you. He wants to use you. Broken as you are, weak as you are, messed up as you still are. Whatever your background is, he wants to use you. And you're going to have to trust him. Just like over here, you had to fight all those Fleshly knows that surely there's something I have to do. Surely it's my baptism. Surely I need to do good works. Surely I have to earn this. It can't just be by grace alone, faith alone. Look what happens over here. The same thing happens that we think I have to qualify myself. I have to earn it. I have to be a certain kind of person for God to use me. News. God has to qualify you to become a son or daughter. By grace 
through faith in Christ. And God has to qualify you to serve him. And it includes every single person he saves. There's nobody less qualified. Not that we are sufficient. Not that we measure up. Not that we're worthy. Not that we meet the standard. Not that we're qualified. But our sufficiency is from God. You have to trust Christ that it's from God. That he would give you a way to serve him. And he would want to use. And and let me give you something to think about. Very often, some of your most effective ministry will be something that God puts on your heart that was born out of that brokenness. Many of the ladies and men that serve in New Hope, counseling these, they've experienced an abortion. Many of the people that can encourage and help those going through divorce the most, they have tasted it. Many of our counselors that are some of the best counselors, they have experienced being up against the wall. Ask God. For too long, God, I've just seen my worst moments in life as simply my worst moments in life. And let's just get past that forevermore. Consider asking him, would you give me a ministry that's born out of this? Would there be something you'd want to do through me starting this year that I'm more effective than other people, even though I'm scared? I don't think I'm the most gifted, but I've tasted the God of all mercies and I've trusted him. And I'm going to have such trust through Christ towards God that he could use me this year. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word. And oh God, thank you that you are not, the eyes of the Lord are not moving throughout the earth looking for the PhDs, looking for the valedictorians, looking for the most confident, gifted, self-sufficient, outgoing. Oh God, thank you that you're looking for the man or woman who has been pressed beyond measure, above strength, to even despair of life, and yet found they could trust you and not themselves. And now you want to use them. Oh God, make this the year. Even if it's behind the scenes and nobody else here even hears about it, knows about it. But you know, a year of fruitfulness, a year of ministry, a year of mercy. Oh God, use us for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.